WBZ original. You know what it is on TV? You're always so aware of not stepping on the other person. But in, in this setting, it's in okay. In this setting, you can talk all it's over okay. each other as much as you want. Yeah. And I yeah. We're, we're me too friendly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's mid-June already. Can you believe that? I can't believe that. <laughs> it's great. Happy summer, Paula. It's fantastic. Paula. Beautiful, gorgeous day out there as we're in a full week of June here on the Studio BZ podcast. I am Paula Evan along with... John Keller. Glad Hi, to John. see you. Happy summer Good to, to all. see you too. And actually, I think this week's podcast is perfect for yes. summer travel, plug mm-hmm. it in in the car, if you're on the beach, little... People an, thinking about recreational marijuana. An, it, absolutely, an interesting mix mm-hmm. here, but you're worried about your taxes. Yep, uh, your summer read. Absolutely, so. a little bit got. of everything. What's so, uh, today, uh, you mentioned the pot. Uh, July 1st is supposedly the opening day for the sale of legal recreational pot, but... That's not happening. We'll talk with Mike Dundas, CEO of Sierra Naturals, which operates three marijuana dispensaries now, about the manufacturer's point of view on what will and won't be happening with legal pot this summer. It's going to be really interesting for people to realize what is and is not happening. Yeah, I I think there's a lot of of misconceptions out there. And also, uh, the millionaire's tax died a horrible death uh, the other day when the Supreme Judicial Court threw out this effort to jack up the income tax rate on people earning seven figures or higher that was headed for the November ballot. We'll talk with one of the key plaintiffs who succeeded in getting that thrown off the ballot. And I think, Paula, we made some news in that interview. Wait till you hear what he says about how he now feels about another potential ballot question, one aimed at cutting the sales tax. That's coming up when we talk with Chris Anderson. That is super interesting. Also, a lot of people were tweeting this around a few days ago. You probably saw it. The big headline in the New York Times that Antarctica is melting three times as fast as a decade ago. So, of course, we went to our chief meteorologist here at WBZ, Eric Fisher, who is extremely well-informed on all of these issues. And he says, that's not so simple as that. So we'll hear from Eric on that. And then Liam and I had the chance, John, to interview just an amazing woman. She's this author from Nantucket, Ellen Hildebrand. If you read her books, you're very familiar with who she is, but if you haven't before, uh, she's just finished her 21st novel. There are always summer beach reads set on Nantucket, and she has an amazing personal story she's woven into her latest book, so we'll talk about that. And uh, speaking of interesting women, mm. how about First Lady Melania Trump? Yeah. Still kind of a mystery, something of an enigma to many Americans. And it looks like Americans don't like enigmatic First Ladies as much as you might expect them to. A new poll shows her approval ratings are historically low for when compared with other first ladies. We'll talk about what the numbers say and why this is happening to poor Melania. All right. So we've got a lot to get to, and we're glad we're with us. Let's start out talking with Mike Dundas. Um, July 1st has been this looming date, John, that I think people, we ask him about this, they think they're going to be able to go right out there and start buying pot and consuming it in public. And people have another thing coming. I wouldn't necessarily make that a part of your July 4th party menu, if you if you know what I mean, because as you'll hear in our conversation with Mike, uh, 
uh, it's been very slow going, getting the apparatus out there, getting all the licenses issued. A lot of cities and towns have been slow to respond to this. We tried to get a little deeper into why this is happening and what the pot aficionado or consumer can really expect come July and beyond. Each day, hundreds of thousands of people pour into the one square mile of downtown miles downtown so what does the onset of the law mean to you in your business? Uh, we're going to see a measured and controlled rollout of probably a small handful of uh, dispensaries in July. And then each month uh, after that, we'll see another small handful uh, online for the next probably six to 12 months. So, Mike, as I understand, I think a lot of people who are sort of not paying close, close attention but heard that date think on July 1st, they can walk in somewhere, buy pot, and start walking out on the sidewalk and smoking it. <laughs> so what do you think people should really know about what they can and cannot do? Even though it'll still be illegal to that's smoke right. on the sidewalk. Right. But, but go they ahead, think Mike. They can. Yeah, good question. Well, I would say that, that that's the very first thing I would say, is that laws that are related to smoking cigarettes are still going to apply to cannabis. And then there's additional, the, the sort of additional, you, you can't uh, be, be get intoxicated in public. So the laws related to drinking in public will also uh, apply to cannabis use in public. All that uh, notwithstanding, I think, as I just said, there is an expectation that these stores are going to be open uh, across the state. I would simply temper expectations uh, a great deal. Mike, how concerning is this? slow rollout to you in terms of your business model. I mean, if people uh, find that there's scarce access, uh, let's say long lines, last time I talked to Steve Hoppen, he said beware of of that initially, Uh, who knows what the pricing structure will be. What's your level of concern that uh, regular users or even casual users may sort of throw up their hands after a couple of months and say, you know what, I'm sticking with my friendly office dealer. You know, I think that's a legitimate question. It's a legitimate concern. I think at the end of the day, we're really talking about a, a delay or a slow roll of, uh, you know, six months or so. There will be some access at first. And, and of course, for our business and for p- folks who are in the medical cannabis business that plan to participate uh, in the adult use business, we're working very, very hard to structure our uh, our operations to be able to accommodate for uh, recreational use. And uh, I can assure you we're working as fast as we can. Uh, but I think that, you know, again, it's a, it's a balancing of the, uh, of, uh, of the stakeholders here. And I think it's a, it's a decent approach. And just in terms of logistics, when you talk about the municipalities, one of the issues on the ballot question was your town can vote to opt out of this, right? You can have a, no, we're not going to sell marijuana in this municipality. Uh, How is that going to work? If you have a town, let's call it, you know, know, my hometown of Shrewsbury. If Shrewsbury decides, you know what, we're going to have a town vote on whether or not we're going to allow sales here. Between now and then, what happens? Sales will just continue until one of those is passed? Well, if you've got a if you if you've got a community that bans uh, recreational cannabis, then they that that use will be banned uh, in perpetuity, and the the communities that end up uh, banning it, uh, a are going to lose uh, revenue from the taxes that they would have been able to impose on it, and I think that they'll they'll see that the communities that do decide to embrace it are not going to incur all of the social harms that everybody says uh, that they might. So 
it's unfortunate in the sense that I think that those of us who've been uh, close to the space for a while know that it is much less harmful than, than we sometimes hear about and that these municipalities are going to ban in what we consider to be often knee-jerk reaction uh, and, and may live to regret it uh, down the road. Uh, Mike, a few people have asked me uh, who have medicinal marijuana cards, what's going to happen when recreational marijuana is available? In some cases, we're talking about the same physical outlet servicing both customer bases, right? Will they be charged the same prices? How's that going to work? Why would someone bother with a medicinal card if they can get what they need for the same price or less? It's a great question. So for Sierra Naturals, our organization, we operate dispensaries in Cambridge and Somerville that we anticipate will be selling both medical and recreational cannabis out of the same location. First of all, there was an initial concern that there might not be enough medical cannabis inventory supply to supply existing medical users. Uh, The Cannabis Control Commission uh, heartily addressed that issue by creating a rule that if there is a dispensary that's going to sell both medical and recreational cannabis, that it must hold 30 percent of its inventory aside for medical patients. There are several factors at play here. I think one of them is that medical marijuana is a medicine and medicine in Massachusetts is not taxed. So while we'll have a 20% tax on adult use or recreational marijuana, there'll be a 0% tax on medical marijuana. So it should be substantially cheaper. There are also additional uh, requirements on on recreational marijuana for the amount that you can buy at any one time. Uh, That's one ounce per visit and the dosing restriction. So for every single uh, serving of recreational marijuana, it must be limited to five milligrams of active cannabinoid. THC is usually the active cannabinoid. So on the medical side, uh, a patient could theoretically purchase up to 10 ounces, which is 10 times more than a a recreational customer could purchase. And also the form factors and the dosages will be higher on the medical marijuana side. So if you've got patients that really need the medicine and need higher doses and need more of it, uh, the medical program will still be there for them. Now, you run two medical dispensaries, right? Cambridge and Somerville. Uh, we run one in Needham as well. Needham, okay. Uh, do they do they turn a profit? They do. They do. They're, they're, they're successful uh, business. We started just a year ago. We opened Cambridge in, uh, in March of 2017. We opened uh, Somerville in September of last year, and we just opened Needham in, in February. And, uh, and, and these are good businesses. And keep in mind also that the, uh, the, the program on the medical side required each individual organization to be fully vertically integrated. So we also op- uh, operate a, a products cultivation and manufacturing facility uh, where we produce, we grow all of our own plants and produce all of our own uh, products. And these are facilities that that operate uh, with a number of uh, high-paying jobs. We bring economic uh, employment and good economic opportunity to the local uh, town where we operate. Creston, particularly about the medical marijuana side, although I think that the recreational side has this as well, it's my understanding from other dispensaries and just the habit of the industry, you can walk in and you'll be told, oh, this strain is good for anxiety. This is going to be good for you if you get migraines, whatever. Our Dr. Malika Marshall will tell you there's absolutely no reliable research because the, the re, there's no data because medical research simply has not been done. It has sort of been verboten in the medical community to have studies over the decades as we do with other drugs. So I'm just curious as an industry, as people come to the dispensaries and start to realize that, uh, how does the industry defend itself in in making these claims uh, that certain strains of marijuana will help you for this or that physiological problem when there's no data to back it up? 
I, that's a great question. And the, the real the, the cause of that dearth of data, of course, is the federal prohibition on cannabis activity for a number of decades. Uh, here in Massachusetts, it's very explicit in our regulations. We are not physicians as medical marijuana dispensaries, and we are prohibited from making those types of medical claims, specific medical claims for a specific person. I think one of the reasons, however, that physicians who do write certifications for medical marijuana feel comfortable in doing so is because of the extraordinary efficacy and therapeutic index of cannabis. And therapeutic index, what I mean is the ratio of a therapeutic effect to toxicity. You simply cannot overdose from marijuana and die. Now, you can take too much of it and you can have a bad experience and we counsel people very, all the time, you know, start low and go slow. Try a little bit at a time and see what works for you. But you can't overdose and die from cannabis. So it's an extraordinarily safe medicine. It's also, it affects different people in different ways. So even if it, if, if this certain strain actually works for a person A's uh, migraine, it might not work for a person B's migraine. And so instead, we talk to folks and we say, listen, this is what we've heard. Some folks said that it works well for this. Some folks say that it works well for that. But the answer is, the true answer is, you've got to figure out what works for you. Well, Mike, you've got the three outlets in Cambridge, Somerville, and Needham. Will they be open for recreational sales on July 1st? None of those stores, uh, unfortunately for us, will be open on July 1st. Needham has banned recreational sales, so we don't see selling recreational cannabis in Needham for the foreseeable future. And Cambridge and Somerville are currently uh, undergoing their municipal zoning process. We hope to be open and operational in Cambridge and in Somerville for recreational sometime in January 2019. Well, good luck. Thank you very much for having me. Jolly Green Giant has lost it, and we have found it. So, John, whenever someone hears a millionaire's tax, they think, sounds good to me. Yeah. I'm sure. At least those um, of us who aren't millionaires. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So we talked to Chris Anderson, president of the Mass High Technology Council. What is that? It's a business group, uh, like the Associated Industries or, or, or various other business groups. They've been around a long time, very active politically. Way back in the late 70s, early 80s, they were a moving force behind the institution of Proposition 2.5. That's the uh, state law that uh, caps the increase in your local property tax each year to 2.5% unless there's a vote to override the cap. So um, he was part of a group of uh, business executives, essentially, uh, representatives of business groups, who went to court to stop an effort by organized labor in coalition with social service groups, some religious groups. For a, for uh, a graduated tax, They right? wanted to slap an, a, a higher income tax rate right. on earnings of over a million dollars a year. Hence the millionaire's tax Hence name. the millionaire's. It's actually l- legally called the Fair Share Amendment. And the yeah. idea was to then earmark that money to be spent on improving transportation infrastructure, right. roads, bridges, the MBT. Mm-hmm. TA and education, schools, schools, uh, public higher ed, and so that they should pay more. Right. So the SJC ruling comes down, slaps this down. Yeah. Um, And the makeup of the Supreme Judicial Court here in Massachusetts at this point is kind of interesting as well because uh, there are significantly more. Governor Baker appointees than yeah. Governor Patrick yeah, appointees five to at two. this point. Five to two right now, although the Baker appointees, it's not as if uh, it's the difference between a Trump appointee and an Obama appointee. They're, right. they're all pretty much considered mainstream. This is Massachusetts. Uh, uh, this is Massachusetts, exactly. So, uh, And the ruling was on fairly narrow grounds. Yes. But very, oh, excuse me, I, I apologize. Um, and also... What was that? 
I'll tell you in a second. My, you know what that is? That is my Downton Abbey ringtone. Oh my God, you're kidding my me. My ringtone is the theme music to Downton Abbey because every time it rings, it makes me happy. You know, usually your phone rings and you think, oh, geez, who is this? I love the theme song, the theme music for Downton Abbey. All right. So um, that's why that was that. I'm gonna, Back to the intro. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to pass on that, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> that's Paula Evans' ringtone, the Downton Abbey theme. It's very tense. All right. It is. It's fraught with class friction, yeah. Jonathan. This is about the class. passing of the empire. All right, now you want to hear mine? Yes. That's a Junior Walker in the All-Stars. Pucker up, buttercup. Also a very intense brooding uh, theme there. <laughs> Was that the open to SNL for a long time? It sounds time? like it. Oh sounds God, a lot that like sounds like exactly it. like the... The SNL yes. music. Right. Doesn't well, it? that's yeah. who the, the Saturday Night Live band is, is ripping composed? off. Yeah, they just yeah. ripped it off. Yeah, they did. Well, basically. Completely. Yeah. I mean, it's all, you know, it's funk, it's soul, <laughs> it's, it's old school, just it's like John, yours hey, truly. And if if you want someone with funk and soul, it's John Keller. Well, it's synonymous. I mean, it, it need not even be said. Uh, so anyway, you were saying the ruling was on very narrow grounds and really interesting point. It was really not on the merits of... The, the millionaire's tax at all, per se, but the way they went about it. Yeah, they ruled that it was unconstitutionally mm. written. And in our conversation with Chris Anderson from the Mass High Technology Council, he talks about, first of all, the broader significance of that mm-hmm. as we go forward uh, uh, with refer- referendum and ballot questions, uh, but also talks about what happens next. They were talking about maybe $2 billion or more in new revenue to the state coming from this tax. Now that's off the board. What happens? to the unmet social and policy needs that remain. Our newscasters, our editors all work as an efficient, well-coordinated fact-finding team. I guess congratulations are in order. The court found that the so-called millionaire's tax was unconstitutional as written and shouldn't have been certified for the ballot. Uh, Is this really a cause for celebration, Chris, or... Has the uh, haven't the core issues that drove that ballot question? Uh, uh, aren't they still around? Well, that's a great question, John. Um, this whole challenge was about process and not the policy. Uh, when the process is flawed or unconstitutional, uh, it it really is inappropriate to proceed. And I think that's what the court recognized in our arguments on this particular question, which is actually historic. Um, This is the first challenge to a citizen's initiative to amend the Constitution since 1937. And I think what the court ultimately did was reinforce the constitutional safeguards that the authors of the Constitution established 100 years ago, uh, specifically forbidding the type of end run around the legislative process that was embedded in this particular question. And and the decision said that this was about initiatives that try to amend the cons that try to amend the constitution but that combine multiple subjects that are unrelated explain that aspect of it it's essentially combining unrelated topics in order to get people to vote for something that might be less palatable i.e. a new tax so there has the, the constitution basically says you can't do that and everything in a single question needs to be uh, either mutually dependent or related well chris 
let's be candid about this. Every indication was that this, if it had stayed on the ballot, was headed for a landslide victory. We agree on that, right? Totally. But that's why when you take uh, education infrastructure, the thing everybody wants to see working well here in Massachusetts, and tack it into a question, who's going to be against it? Well, and I I also, uh, just my opinion here, but I think the whole idea of having millionaires pay more was also widely popular. So now it's back in the legislature's basket. What do you expect and what are you lobbying for in terms of legislative action on new revenues going forward? Well, I think it's been pretty widely documented, uh, John and Paula, that states that have tried to raise taxes on a narrow band of individuals or businesses have seen that strategy backfire. So when I say we're trying to avoid Massachusetts becoming Connecticut in a New York minute, this is exactly what I'm talking about. And New Jersey, Illinois, uh, and, and Connecticut have all uh, have all some very challenging uh, fiscal stability issues at their states that are inhibiting investment and job growth. Now, we've put 20 years between Massachusetts and where we are today, which is the envy, certainly of the country and, and many places around the world. Embarking on a uh, an approach to tax high-wealth individuals or a narrow band of businesses uh, in an environment that also has pretty expensive uh, budgets in a lot of key areas is probably a recipe for destabilizing our strong economy. And yet we've known for some time that we faced a multi-billion dollar infrastructure deficit in terms of what we need to bring our roads, bridges, rail lines, all that stuff up to snuff. And I think uh, uh, to the extent that uh, some or maybe many of our listeners also ride the MBTA, I mean, they want to know, what's your better idea for coming up with the do-re-mi to fix all this stuff? Well, in real simple terms, we now have, what, a $41 billion state budget. Over 60% of that state budget is dedicated to mandatory expenses in three key areas, uh, pension, uh, debt service, and health care. The biggest part of the fiscal stability challenge is on uh, Medicaid, and I think there's some important work that needs to be put there, just like the Baker administration did with the MBTA, to make sure that we rein in unnecessary cost growth. And, you know, there may be a need for some additional targeted revenue, uh, but doing it in the Constitution where the legislature can't amend it or change it in the future is the wrong way to do it. Well, now, in the meantime, there's another ballot question that is still headed for the November ballot, sponsored by the Mass Retailers Association that would dramatically cut the state sales tax. Uh, There have been discussions going on uh, up on Beacon Hill uh, between various stakeholders about perhaps amending or backing away from that, uh, perhaps amending or backing away from other ballot questions that would mandate family and medical leave and also a $15 an hour minimum wage. First of all, have you been privy to any of those discussions, Chris? So our focus has been on concluding successfully the litigation challenge. Um, I think there's a, a very close nexus between the outcome that we got today and the leverage that will provide uh, the House and Senate leadership and the advocates uh, for for and against those ballot questions to come up with a so-called grand bargain. Now that they know that there's not this uh, threat 
hanging over the economy with this new tax. It makes the sales tax cut uh, really important for uh, a lot of people to avoid because of the billion dollar plus it'll take out of our tight budget. And it puts some pressure on those advocating some uh, fairly non-competitive proposals that actually would hurt parts of our economy to, to cut a deal with the retailers. So you, you propose keeping the sales tax right where it is. Is that what you want to see? Yeah, I, I wouldn't. Uh, I, I don't think there's a. Ch- I mean, even though it would pass at the polls by the same people who would probably vote to impose yeah. tax on you know, wealthy <laughs> voters. Yeah. Uh, I don't. I don't think that's the right uh, concoction for Massachusetts. And it gets to what I think is going to be a proliferation if we don't get our fiscal stability house in order. Every two years, we're going to see major public policy being battled out uh, on a bumper sticker campaign um, that that will be chaotic. Uh, for the legislature to manage. I mean, how do you manage a budget when you have no idea whether your taxes are going up or down every year? Well, uh, one way is to have your legislature and your executive branch get their act together, step up and make these policies and not leave it to the ballot. Why don't we have that in Massachusetts? That's that. Uh, well, actually, let me let me ask you because that's exactly what I've been saying. Um, you know, we've got a change going on in the legislature, and maybe people will, uh, you know, take a look at uh, what that means when they're looking at individual races. But I think the administration and certainly the House leadership have a history over the past four years of uh, trying to be collaborative. I know with the that's had to include the Senate, um, but. But right now, we're going to enter a new period after the elections. And I think it's incumbent on Speaker DeLeo, President uh, Spilka, and Governor Baker uh, to make sure that we don't devolve into a two-year, every two-year cycle of uh chaotic and conflicting ballot measures. Well, I just want to clarify what I'm hearing from you, Chris, because I'm old enough to remember that, I don't know if you were around at the beginning, you're, you're, you're certainly younger or younger looking uh, than I am, but uh, the Mass High Tech Council was the forefather of Citizens for Limited Taxation in some ways, and, you know, since the early 1980s, it's been an article of faith in this state, even though there have been uh, times when taxes were raised, but that that was sort of a political third rail. And as you just noted, you have the governor and the House leadership who are uh, extremely reluctant to go there. So uh, I'm not sure I see how we're headed now to a new era where there's going to be more give in those positions. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know, uh, but I, I, I can tell you this, John. The council, and I was around right after Prop 2.5, and, um, and we, we've been involved in a number of uh, advancing and defending against various statutory ballot questions. Okay, so, uh, you, all... so you dye your hair as I do then. You're not that yeah, young so, looking. Okay, go yeah, ahead. No, I, go ahead. I don't have any hair to dye. All right, all right. Yes, yes you right. do. Go ahead. Or a lot less. So... I think the ballot, the the initiative process is never going to go away here. It's in the Constitution. No legislator is going to, uh, you know, monkey with that uh, in the near term. But, uh, A, it has to be done constitutionally. So the constitutional amendment is very, very different from a statutory ballot question like the marijuana law that legislatures can then amend or, or improve. The the statute the uh, constitutional amendment is a very very serious matter and that's why uh, three years ago we started working on a strategy to make sure that that question was clarified by the 
the uh, state Supreme Judicial Court. And can I just add one further thought to what you're saying? It might also be helpful if voters would turn off the the, the computer and pay some attention mm-hmm. to what's going on with their legislators, how responsibly or irresponsibly they're acting on these public policy issues, and get a little bit uh, a, a higher level of citizen involvement here to see to it that policies are being made that make sense for everyone here. I think you're raising a topic for another podcast. <laughs> yeah, good segue. You know, if we could get Kim Kardashian to Instagram about it, you know, <laughs> we'd have action on just all these public policy issues. The Kardashian effect. That Sounds would good. Be effective. Thank you, Chris. Chris, thanks for your time. My pleasure. Take care. Ellen Hildebrand is a Nantucket resident who is the acclaimed author of 21 novels. She has been called the queen of the summer beach novel. In fact, her books usually are set on Nantucket, but her latest book, The Perfect Couple, involves a very serious topic that is also very important to her. And Ellen, welcome. Thanks so much for coming in the studio to be with us. Thank you for having me. Wonderful to meet you. And we want to start off because the book, The Perfect Couple, is about a wedding that takes place on Nantucket. But you are a breast cancer survivor and you chose to make that part of the story. Talk a little bit about your decision there. That's right. So this week marks the fourth anniversary of my my double mastectomy, my treatment for stage one breast cancer. Um, And the novel, I, I had... After I was treated, I really wanted to write a novel that had breast cancer incorporated, Mm. um, but I wasn't ready. Honestly, you're sort of in a post-traumatic stress thing for a while. And then um, when I finally wrote this book, I was far enough away from it that I could deal with the topic in a thoughtful way where I wasn't too emotional about it. Mm. So the mother of the bride in my novel, Karen Otis, has stage four breast cancer. Um, And I used that because it suited my plot, A, but B, because I have done so many events and I've I've spoken um, for numerous organizations and a lot of them have really focused on stage four patients Mm -hmm. and the quality of life that they're having is so inspirational in the way they are just living each day to the fullest. Um, I wanted to honor those people by by having this character in my Mm. novel. Did your experience inform how you wrote that character? And if so, was it the first time that you found yourself kind of writing about yourself in a way. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the first thing that happens, and I don't care what kind of cancer you have, when you're diagnosed with cancer, the very first thing you think is what? I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. That's just, and that's sort of how we were raised because it was, it is such a grave disease. Um, so the, you have all of these existential thoughts. What does my life mean? What's going to happen to my children? Um, and so I, I took all of those emotions that I'd had, that I'd sort of had to sublimate in the name of being strong, mm-hmm. and I was able to give them to my character and really give them a voice. Yeah. And, and that is so... Uh, wonderful for women who've gone through it, to be able to read that, to see a character in a book. And we have to mention that you do specifically mention the Breast Cancer Research Foundation in the book, and WBZ is a proud media sponsor of BCRF, because you take a lot of time to speak and appear for BCRF around the country at events everywhere, on your book tours and everything. What is it about that organization that you think is most crucial to Well, the thing I love about it is that they fund all different hospitals in all different parts of the country. They're really treating the disease and um, trying to find a cure. And I follow them on Instagram and various platforms. And the amazing research they're doing, I mean, they're all about the science. And you need money 
to fund the research, and it's very, very clear that that is how we're going to find a cure. Mm. Even since I've been diagnosed, the things mm. that they've done for in four years are amazing, and people are who do have stage four are living longer, and people like me are completely, you know, in remission, and I have very limited lasting effects from from what happened, which, which is incredible. Amazing. So the mother of the groom gives a huge donation in the book. She does oh. in the book. The yeah. The so sometimes the mother of the groom and the mother of the bride <laughs> don't see eye to eye, but in this case, the mother of the groom <laughs> secretly writes an enormous check to the BCRF to, to honor the mother of the bride. You've written so many books. We said twenty one novels. Uh, did you find? that writing about an issue in a way was a, was a different process for you? How did you tackle that? Um, I really, I, this one was so close to my heart that I didn't, I didn't have any problem doing it. And it mm. gave, it, you know, it, you want to be careful because you don't want uh, to define the mother of the bride by her illness. Sure. So she, of course, has other things about her that are, you know, wonderful and interesting. Sure. Um, but it did, it did give her something special, like a real, people are sympathetic to her. Yeah. And, and yeah. it's your first murder mystery. And it was my first murder oh. mystery, so yeah, that was the challenge. Someone <laughs> dies. <laughs> what I love is someone dies, but your editor thought the wrong person died initially. That's right. So <laughs> I had giving anything it. away, right? No, no okay. we're not giving anything away. I thought uh, for, for two-thirds of the book when I'm writing it, I thought one person did it, and then I went in, and I thought, oh, no, it was revealed to me that it was actually somebody else. That's so interesting. Yeah. You didn't have it ahead of time. No. You discovered it like, no. the, like the reader would. Absolutely. Do you find, uh, because you have three children, you, yes. you live on Nantucket, when people come to vacation and they pick up your books, do they ever run into you on the island? All the say, time. It's you. Oh, yes. Well, now, you know, people are <laughs> looking for me. <laughs> so, yeah, I have people, uh, the other day, it was Nantucket Book Festival, so there were a lot of book readers, more than usual, mm. but I got stopped. I was out doing errands. I probably got stopped three times. Mm. And people were so excited. And, and it, it happens more and more. I mean, with every book you pick up, more readers. And the thing that they love is that, uh, thankfully or hope or gratefully, I was able to evoke the island enough that they wanted to come visit. Mm. So what I will see very often is people who are like, I'm only here because of your books. And that's nice. That is And I should nice. be getting a kickback from the Chamber of Commerce. You should. The Nantucket <laughs> Chamber of Commerce. I must exactly. love. You publish a book every June. Every June. They come out like clockwork. Yes. Wonderful. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> well, the latest book job. is The Perfect Couple. Ellen Hildebrand, thank you so much. By the way, Ellen welcome. thought that I was 25, so already <laughs> she's one of my favorite people. So Liam loves her. There you go. Listen now to this recording. Taken off the air at the exact moment. So, John, this was a story that was everywhere. People got mobile alerts. People saw it on Twitter. And it was one of those freak-out headlines in the New York Times. Antarctica is melting three times as fast as a decade ago. Then the New York Times had to issue a correction on June 13th. And essentially, the article made it sound as though the continent's rate of ice loss is speeding, contributing to rising sea levels. We're all going to die. The correction on June 13th reads, an earlier version of this article misstated the recent change in the rate at which Antarctica is losing ice. The rate at which the ice is melting has tripled since 2007. It has not more than doubled since 2012, nor did it accelerate by 165% from 2012 to 2017. The error was repeated in a headline and a mobile news alert. So we're not all going to die? So we're not all going to die, like, next week, 
because Antarctica is melting. Week after that. A week after next, perhaps. Eric Fisher weighs in on this, who really, really takes his science very seriously, and this topic in particular, because it's so crucial to the Boston area, where sea level rise is potentially catastrophic, and we really have to give it serious thought. Um, And he tries to elucidate what's going on here, but I would put forth that this is a huge part of the problem. Uh, When you talk to climate change deniers, as they're labeled, uh, and scientists who are deeply concerned, and politicians who will brush things off as fake news because of errors like this, uh, this is a massive, massive problem for our time, don't you think? Well, look, uh, after those pictures from the seaport last fall, was it? Yeah, where the seaport was underwater, the dumpster floating down. I mean, you know, I'll never forget that. So clearly, we do have some issues here. Mm -hmm. The problem is, as you point out, when the debate gets clouded by blunders like this, it's it's a disaster in its own right. This is Greater Boston, cradle of American democracy. You think about Antarctica. This is a massive continent with a lot of ice. And so if anything becomes unstable there, or if you start melting a lot of ice at once, there's a lot of sea level rise that's locked up in Antarctica, which is why it's such a busy area of research right now. And it's also a very difficult place to study. If you want to measure what's going on on Antarctica, you need polar orbiting satellites. They're not geostationary, which means you're not looking at the same place all the time, monitoring these changes. Like, those are the types of satellites that are watching our weather, geostationary satellites. And there's also a lot of debate about what are we measuring. There is a difference between snow and ice because the density is much more different. So if you talk about this layer is 100 feet thick and it's ice, well, there's a huge difference between that layer that's ice or is it actually snow? Um, And you can't even get out to some of these places to figure out exactly, well, is it snow or is it ice? And now we're talking billions and billions of pounds of difference, which is a ton more water, a ton more potential melt. And so they've looked at this area and said, wow, we're losing a tremendous amount of ice very quickly. Will it continue? Is it a something that's just uh, something on a decadal time scale and it could flip back in another 10 years? That's possible too. It's also important to point out that uh, not all ice leads to sea level rise. So sea ice is like an ice cube in your drink. If you have a glass of water and it has a bunch of ice cubes in it and then those ice cubes melt, the water level doesn't change because you're just melting water that was already in there. Now, what we're interested in is land ice. Um, And Antarctica has a lot of land ice, much, much more than the Arctic, which is why it has such larger implications for sea level rise. Because if you are melting what's on land, that is what really contributes. And the sea ice does matter to us as well, because if you lose ice coverage, you're also changing the reflectivity of the surface of the Earth. So places that no longer are covered in ice, which reflects a lot of sunlight and solar energy, now become open water, that water more easily absorbs energy from the sun. And now we get a bit of a feedback. You also watch the changing ocean temperatures because as waters warm, they also expand. So there's a bunch of different things that we watch, but basically a warming ocean is an ocean that's rising. It's not that simple, and these things rarely are. I mean, usually we see, we're used to headlines that are just shareable, easy, quick. 
And then you actually click on a study, or you dig into all the details, and you realize, yeah, there's a lot of gray area here. You know, if we get into, and there's always going to be doomsday scenarios or worst-case scenarios, not always going to pan out, but they could. Uh, If we get into one of these higher-level or runaway types of situations, I mean, if you see a significant amount, we're talking a few feet of sea level rise in a few decades, if something like that, one of those worst-case types of scenarios comes to pass, in a few feet is life-changing for a city like Boston. You know, think about the flooding that we saw back in March. So we had a storm surge of three feet. So where the water was would just be where the water is. We had water standing in the seaport and the west end, and it was creeping into the north end, and the subway is still, the elevators are shut down over by the aquarium. That would just be the resting water level. And then you'd still have your storms bringing three-foot storm surge. Uh, How quickly can we adapt to it? You know, I think Boston is one of the most concerned cities, and they're actually doing something about it. You know, I see a lot of positive action in the city. Uh, If we get into a runaway scenario, I think it would happen so fast that it would mean a serious impact for us here in New England. I'm concerned, and I'm not. Uh, I'm concerned that a way of life can change. You know, we are tied to kind of static memories and static environments. We remember beaches where they are and businesses where they are and houses where they are. And when you have sea level rise, things could change dramatically. I mean, we can always retreat, move back a little bit. I mean, the earth has been changing for millions of years and we've seen 60, 80, 100 foot sea level rise changes on much longer timescales. But when we talk about this kind of shorter time scale things escalating very quickly i mean you can see towns or areas that are just going to have to shutter up it's sad in a way that things will probably be different for our kids and their kids um, they won't know the same beaches or the same towns or the same way that we grew up with them Hey, it isn't easy being First Lady of the United States. I'm sure we can all agree on that. You're under constant scrutiny. You make a mistake. You buy some fancy dishes, as Nancy Reagan (laughs) found out. You are definitely fair game for the critics, and you're really not in a position to to respond, perhaps, as, as sharply as you'd like. Nonetheless... Over the years, when it comes to public approval, most first ladies do very, very well, significantly better than their president husbands until now, Paula. The new CNN poll that came out the other day finds Melania Trump's favorability rating has dropped sharply in the past six weeks, Mm -hmm. down to 51%. Her unfavorable rating is up slightly within the margin of error to 29%. Now, 51%, that's still uh, a significant chunk better than her husband Donald is Mm -hmm. getting. But let me Mm -hmm. put it in, in context. Laura Bush, remember her? Mm -hmm. She peaked uh, in public approval in 2005 at 85%. That's unprecedented. That's the all time record. That's the all time high. But Michelle Obama wasn't far behind. Her peak Mm -hmm. was 79% approval, Mm -hmm. as controversial as she was at times. And, uh, and he, even Hillary Clinton as first lady. It's easy to forget now when her approval ratings are uh, similar to those of a, a red wine stain on your white shag carpet. Uh, as first lady in 1999, 80% approval. Yeah. So yeah. 
Here's here's where I want your insight. Yeah. Why is Melania Trump doing so poorly by comparison? You know, it's really interesting because do you ever follow Kate Bennett with CNN is on the FLOTUS watch. Yeah. She seems to be the only national correspondent devoted only to covering Melania. And it's really interesting to watch her feed because, for instance, when Melania Trump went in for her surgery and really wasn't seen in public for something like three weeks, days, yeah, three, three weeks, uh, People were, where is she? And they're hiding her. What's happened? And Kate Bennett would put out tweets and say, if you follow her office closely, you'll see this isn't unusual for Melania Trump. She appears to be an enormously private individual. Uh, There was talk in the run-up to the election that even in New York, where Donald Trump loves the publicity, loved being seen out on the scene at night, She was not like that, particularly after their son was born. She was home at night with her child and didn't want to be seen at every gala, every party. Uh, She seems to be kind of a homebody. But don't you think Americans are used to a first lady, particularly after Michelle Obama, constantly kind of being the emotion behind the president and emoting and, and rubber stamping the message of the day and reaffirming what Americans want to feel good about in or, the White House. Or carving out a niche of their own that's broadly exactly. popular. Now, Michelle Obama's fitness campaign had its share of critics, right. but was generally well-received. And, you know, uh, Lady Bird Johnson, I remember, was into highways, be- beautification right? of the highways right. and right. so forth. Laura Bush was literacy. Literacy. Uh, again, a popular topic, but uh, right. Mrs. Trump has tried to get involved in the the cyber bullying yeah. angle. That what what's the, the campaign? Be best. Oh yeah, be best. Uh, no I one knows what that means. And I, it seems as though just observing her office doesn't seem to be able to articulate to her how painfully ironic this particular issue can be for her to choose, since her husband lashes out at people on Twitter right. and online so much. Right. Uh, one thing I have to say. You have to step back every once in a while and admire. I could certainly not go to another country and conduct a profession in, my, in a second language. I am, was so abysmal at languages in my education. She speaks several, being European. So she is, um, you know, conducting this high-profile life in her second or third or fourth language, for all we know. And and I, I would imagine there comes with that some really careful planning to make sure she well, doesn't look, step I, in it. As you pointed out, and I, I find this uh, certainly admirable, she's doing it her own way. Mm. Uh, I mean, let's be honest about it. She does not live at the White House. Yeah. They, uh, She has a house in Virginia. I read, I wish I could cite your chapter in verse, but I read uh, up a little bit about this. Uh, I believe it's in Virginia, mm-hmm. where her parents and Baron, the ten-year-old right. son, live. Because he's going to school. He goes like Chevy Chase. He goes something. to a school nearby, right. and she's very protective. involved and active in his life and protective. And she's a, a somewhat of a private person. Yeah. And again, you know, nothing wrong with that. Mm. I, if you dive into the internal crosstabs in the CNN poll, mm. it's pretty clear that her popularity problems, for the most part flow from being married to him. Yes. This situation with Mrs. Trump, yeah. I think, may completely rewrite the book yes. on how the unpopularity of the spouse rubs Reflects. off in a very negative way on the wife. Do you think it's a problem that she appears to be hiding a lot? You know, wouldn't you if you were her? That's the thing. <laughs> I don't blame her. I don't blame I her. I don't blame her But one I think bit. we're always used to seeing a president 
with the smiling first lady just standing there appearing lovely and gazing totally supportive lovingly and 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 having some sort of innocuous issue that they put i have a hot take go ahead jonathan has a hot take all right jonathan why is first lady even a thing well, I mean, it's tradition. There's something, well, like, royal about it. Well, and right. we don't have a royal family. That's right. Mm. Bingo. There's an official office of the First Lady, but, like, right. is it a position? Well, Hillary Clinton did that. Hillary Clinton moved the office of the First Lady into the West Wing. Oh, really? It was not before. It was the East Wing. And it, you really saw the question of, what is this, when Hillary Clinton appeared to have an office next to the president and she was going to help make policy? Well, they ran. That did not go well. He ran. Clinton ran in 92 with the slogan, right. you get two for the price right. of one. People right? really didn't like that because the whole notion was she wasn't elected to anything. And arguably the worst first lady of modern times was Bess Truman, <laughs> Harry Truman's wife, yeah. who was apparently this dyspeptic creature who hated Washington, that's yeah, that's sure. understandable, sure. but refused to move there. She stayed back in Independence, yeah. Missouri. And there are uh, reams of letters mm. from Truman to his wife yeah. expressing how desperately lonely Begging he is and how he come. wishes she were there. Yeah. She had no wind. She makes Melania look like, uh, uh, like right. Jackie Kennedy. And then, of course, the saddest of all, the poor Mary Todd Lincoln, who wouldn't leave the White House for three months after the assassination and apparently just left one day in a driving rainstorm in a carriage and went away and that was it. One of the, and one hanging of the out, saddest first ladies. And hanging out in the White House back in her time was not a day at the beach. <laughs> you may remember from the movie yeah. Lincoln how oh, sure. people were bringing their goats and livestock oh, yeah. in there. Yeah. The place it smelled not, like a barnyard. I, you know, I cut every first lady some slack, I, especially for the things like the vacations and the travel and the what have you. What are they supposed to do? I mean, you know, they're stuck in there. They got to fly on Air Force One. But um, she might want to get a little more visible I say abolish the office, bring back the goats. Bring back the goats. You're a sick person. Seek help. Identify problems, come up with some solutions, help people. Uh, knowledge is a great weapon. So, uh, John, this was our most varied podcast yet, don't you think? We covered yeah. a lot of topics. I mean, uh, for me, when I download a podcast, that's kind of what I'm looking for. Yeah. I mean, I can only take just so much. Uh, maybe I'm a child of of the TV era, but I can only take just so much on one given topic. Yes. Uh, yes. So we like to mix it up. I think we uh, we accomplished that mission this week, Paul. That was good. Subscribe, tell your friends. Uh, at Studio BZ Pod is our Twitter handle. Mine is at Paula Evan WBZ. And I'm at Keller at Large. And you can download us anywhere you listen to podcasts, but of course, always on CBSBoston.com. Paula, have a great weekend. Have a good week and... We'll be seeing you. We will be seeing you, whether you want to be zeen or not. <laughs> what does it mean to be zeen? To be zeen. That's good. That's good. Something only happens. How, how, how does one zee? It, <laughs> it's something only zine. true hep cats understand. It's true.